Welcome to The Wildlife, a program that probes the mysteries of the animal world through interviews with scientists and other wildlife investigators. I'm Laurel Nemi, your host for The Wildlife, and also author of Animal Investigators, How the World's First Wildlife Forensics Lab is Solving Crimes and Saving Endangered Species. Today on The Wildlife, I'll talk about seahorses with Helen Scales, author of Poseidon's Steed, the story of seahorses from myth to reality. Seahorses live mysterious lives, tucked away out of sight on the seafloor. Helen Scales' book, Poseidon's Steed, opens up that world to us as she peers over the shoulder of the scientists who have long puzzled over the unusual anatomy and strange sex lives of seahorses. Dr. Helen Scales is a marine biologist, writer, and broadcaster. She has lived and worked in various countries and specializes in fisheries, habitat protection, and the international trade in endangered species. She now lives in Cambridge, England, where she works as a consultant for a number of conservation groups, including the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, or IUCN, Natural England, and Traffic International. For her PhD from the University of Cambridge, she studied the loves and lives of one of the biggest coral reef fish, the Napoleon wrasse, and its imperiled status due to demand from Asian live seafood restaurants. She appears as a radio host on the BBC's The Naked Scientist show and on BBC Radio 4's Home Planet. She also produces and presents a new podcast series called Naked Oceans, a fun and informative exploration of the undersea realm. In her first book, Poseidon's Steed, the story of seahorses from myth to reality, she explores humankind's thousand-year fascination with seahorses. When I spoke to her recently, I asked Helen what prompted her to fall in love with seahorses. Well, it's it's been a long time, I must admit. Um, in fact, I, I think it really began, the beginnings of it was when I learned to scuba dive when I was a teenager in the UK. And uh, and I learned, I learned to dive in, in chilly, cold waters where at first there didn't seem like there was much to see. But instantly, as soon as I encountered my first fish underwater, I was absolutely just obsessed and, and hooked on the underwater world and, and everything that lived in it. And uh, I had this desire to get out there and to, to see what I could find. And very quickly, it was the seahorses that became the, the group of fish, of underwater creatures, that I really wanted to see more than anything else. Why is that? Um, they were just, in my mind, the most magical and beautiful creatures, so unlikely in their appearance and in their biology. Um, and they are so hard to find that it just became something of a quest for me to see um, one for myself, really. And uh, so for years and years of, of scuba diving and, and research, because this obsession with the ocean world really led to my becoming a marine biologist, um, I never saw a seahorse for myself in the wild. I saw them in, in aquariums and, and that just really added to my love of them. Um, but I never saw one myself. So it was this just a, a huge desire of mine to to meet these creatures and and to understand a little bit more about um, about where they came from and and why it is they have such strange lives. So in part, it was maybe the fact that you hadn't seen one, like they were playing hard to get. That always makes you want them more. <laughs> yeah, they were definitely playing hard to get. There's no question about that. That's for sure. Um, and I guess it's just the, it's that tantalizing possibility of a seahorse that always just drove me on. And um, of course, the, the oceans are filled with lots of many other beautiful and wonderful creatures. And in a way, for me, the seahorse really is the icon that, that opens up the world to, to all the others, which is partly why I decided to write the book. Um, that it isn't just about seahorses, it's about the oceans in general. Tell me about the first time you saw a seahorse in the wild. It was a long time coming. Uh, I had been hunting and, well, searching for these wonderful seahorses for many years as being a, a diver and a and a researcher because it was marine biology that hooked me in and that's, that's what I became. Um, but I finally, in fact, rather kind of... <laughs> bizarrely I finally saw uh, had my proper first underwater seahorse encounter um, while I was researching for the book I went to Vietnam uh, really to, to study and to look at the trade in seahorses um, which is big out there um, but I took some time out and I decided that I'd see if I could find some wild seahorses that were still alive not caught in the trade and I did and it was just the most it was the most wonderful moment I I'd imagined it in my mind for but as you can imagine for years and uh, it's it's the possibility of seeing a seahorse you never know if you 
you know, the next blade of seagrass, they might be hiding there waiting for you. You never know. And it was just, it was as perfect as I imagined. Although I think I reacted a little differently. I was almost like, oh, right, this deep kind of contentment just and calm happiness just sort of swamped me. I sat sat down. I was at about 15 metres underwater and I was on a sort of sandy bottom with bits of little bits of seagrass and coral and and he was little orange seahorse with two little white saddles drawn across its back um was just clutching onto a piece of coral and he was just sitting there very calmly and I sat down on sort of lay down on the seabed next to it and, and I just wanted to stay there watching it forever I didn't want to move you know it was just just so wonderful to finally see this creature that I'd been after for so long and to know finally I had proof myself that they are real they're not made up <laughs> sadly I couldn't spend that long because we'd already spent most of the dive looking for him and then finally he was there it's just it's a magic moment I've seen a few more since then I've been very lucky to see a couple in different places and each time it's just just as wonderful as the first time and I, I think I feel like if I never saw a seahorse again then you know that would be enough that one encounter would be enough but it's just just knowing that they're there is the main thing and that's just wonderful there's such odd-looking creatures. I have to read a quote from your book, Poseidon's Steed, about how strange they were. And this really hit home because you say in it, um, should we presume these odd-looking creatures were designed by a mischievous god who had some time on her hands? Rummaging through a box labeled spare part, she finds a horse's head and, feeling a desire for experimentation, places it on top of the pouched torso of a kangaroo. This playful god adds a pair of swiveling chameleon eyes and the prehensile tail of a twee-dwelling monkey for embellishment. Then she stands back to admire her work. Not bad, but how about a suit of magical color-changing armor and a crown borrowed from a fairy princess, shaped as intricately and uniquely as a human fingerprint? Shrink it all down to the size of a chess piece and the new creature is complete. I love that description of a seahorse. <laughs> well, thank you very much it's uh it's odd to hear my words read, read back to me but it's nice. it is such a strange looking creature can you tell me about them how starting and maybe this is the hardest question is how many species of seahorses are there well that is a very good question and in fact just today i was reading an article online about some uh someone from south africa who'd seen a seahorse and they confidently claimed that there were 80 species of seahorses and i thought oh that's a bit much um because there are different opinions about just which species are true species and which ones are, are maybe split where they shouldn't be um but generally um what is agreed is that there are around about 39 species of seahorse so you know, we're looking at around about that level, maybe maybe about 40. And we're still discovering new species, which is really exciting. In particular, in the last few years, um, the pygmy seahorses. There's lots more pygmy seahorses have been discovered. And these are the tiniest seahorses. We're really talking under an inch uh, in, in height from the top of its tail, uh, from the top of its head to the bottom of its unwound tail. So really tiny creatures. So no wonder they haven't been found yet. But now with more scuba divers and photographers, really scouring coral reefs because a lot of these these uh, tiny creatures are from, from coral reefs um we're finding more so you know there are more species out there to be found so we will add to that list but we're looking at uh, around about 40 at the moment and the really interesting thing is for me i think learning uh, originally i assumed you know when i was scuba diving i assumed that they all lived in the tropics that from coral reefs and and that was where they the seahorses lived but in fact they live in temperate waters um you find them almost all the way through shallow seas apart from the very coldest frozen seas um but the chances are if you you went to a piece of coastline and your toes aren't completely freezing when they dev them in the sea there's a chance you might you might see a seahorse they they live along most of the coastlines uh and that's just wonderful that, that they're this cosmopolitan group that show up occasionally if you look carefully enough all over the world so that's different than you think, because you think you do think of them as only on, you know, in coral reefs and tropical areas. But exactly, they, yeah. You you do. They have this sort of reputation of being perhaps sort of wonderfully exotic, I suppose, and that's what we associate them with. But but yeah, they are. They 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 do live all the way through the ocean. So so we all have our our resident local seahorses. That means I could find them. On the coast of Florida, or oh, absolutely, yeah, uh, yeah. Florida certainly has its it has its seahorses, uh, um, and all the way up 
I mean, up the the eastern seaboard of the US, I believe they've been shown up in Cape Cod, um, you know, right up to Newfoundland, um, uh, and then down the, the, the South American coast too, down into Brazil and and further down south. So, um, you know, I think yeah, in the southern coast of Australia. Yeah, that's pretty cold water, but you get seahorses along there, so uh, they don't seem to mind being cold. <laughs> Do the types of seahorses vary depending where they are? Oh, absolutely, yes. We've got a global distribution. Some of them have quite a wide range. So, for example, there, um, there are some seahorses that live really quite a long way across um, the Pacific and the Indian Oceans. You get quite a wide range for a few of them. And, and some have a very small uh, range. For example, the smallest range of any of the seahorses is called the Cape uh, Seahorse, and that lives in South Africa. It only lives in one, no, in three uh, estuaries in, in in just off off the um, off the tip of South Africa. So they have the smallest range of any of the seahorses, which is amazing to think, but also quite worrying in that it means that they are highly vulnerable to any problems that might happen in that area. So if there was any any changes to the coastal uh, waters, to pollution, and so on, they might really be in trouble there. But um, but yeah, there are there are Mediterranean seahorses. There are there are seahorses that live in the north of England. Um, all around the coast of Scotland and Ireland and um, along the Pacific seaboard of North and South America and uh, all the way around Australia. There are a lot of Australian seahorses. They've got a fair share, a big, big share of the seahorses come from Australia. We're just really still learning more about the distribution of seahorses using techniques like DNA studies to, to really unpick their, where the species boundaries lie, if you like. So where does one species begin and another end? And sometimes that's very clear. And sometimes it's it's a little bit hazy and uh, still questions have to be answered about um, exactly whether that's one species or whether it's two species uh, and so on. So there's many questions that still need to be answered in the seahorse world. So this is a good field for students to go into. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I'd say so. And I think there's a lot of people who uh, who enjoy and, and find lots of great things out about seahorses. But as I say, there's still lots to come, definitely. What kind of habitat do they need? Well, um, we talked about coral reefs, and that's definitely one place um, that they do live. Um, Seagrasses is another really popular seahorse hangout. In fact, um, I should just say I've just been um, on a holiday to the Red Sea in Egypt, and I was not expecting it at all, but I was diving on a seagrass bed, and I saw a seahorse. Oh, really? Um, A giant (laughs) It was wonderful. Yeah, I was so pleased because I really wasn't expecting it. Um, the dive master actually found it for me, um, which was wonderful. So, and that was on a really a lovely piece of seagrass habitat, um, and that's a big favourite for them. And generally, what a seahorse needs is something to hold on to, because one thing, one of those characteristics that I was describing in my book there about the tail, the curling tail. Um, and that's really what they use. They don't swim fast like normal fish because they don't have a big tail fin, that caudal fin that most fish have. They have this this grasping tail, more like a monkey's tail, really, and they just hold on to things. They don't swim very far, generally. They're quite uh, sedentary little creatures. So they like things like seagrass to hold on to. There are some species that live around mangroves. That's great sort of structural habitat for them to hold on to. Um, and there are even seahorses that take up residence in man-made structures like jetties, um, like uh, sort of in marinas and, and places like that where there are underwater things for them to, to hold on to. Um, and then, you know, sponge gardens, um, you know, seaweed, things like that. They're all, all, all of those are popular seahorse places. And, and they also have this wonderful camouflage, which means they're very hard to find when they're hidden in a, in a seagrass bed because they really make a good impersonation of a, a piece of seagrass. <laughs> <laughs> How big are they? Or what, you know, what's the biggest and what's the smallest? The biggest I have never seen in person, which would be wonderful, I hope one day I will, is the the um, big-bellied seahorse from Australia. And they are a foot long, um, really, from head to tail. I mean, obviously, they've got quite a long tail, um, but they're quite big, really. And then the smallest ones are these pygmy seahorses, which can be just infinitesimally small, like we're talking less than an inch. I mean, they could stretch out on a penny, really. They're, they're really tiny. Um, on average, most of the species are kind of around two, two, two or three inches, I'd say, long. So that's, as you might imagine, that kind of in-between size is, is, is what you normally get. But uh, but they do have a range range of sizes. And when you're talking about them, their size, uh, you're talking about them stretched out, but their tails really curl up 
quite a bit. That's right. So their bodies are always smaller than that, what we call the total length, the, the head to tail length, which is the sort of standard way of, of measuring a seahorse. But uh, if you want to identify them, one there are lots of other measurements that will help you um, really pin down which a species is, uh, including how long its snout is, um, the length and the kind of, is it stubby or is it long and slender? And you get quite a difference in between species with um, in that kind of um, head anatomy. And also the sort of size of its belly, is it big belly, like the big belly seahorse has a very pr- prominent belly, even um, without pregnancy. Um, and uh, and some are slightly more slender and less less bulging. So you, you get kind of themes on a seahorse, I guess, you know, from they're obviously all from the same mold. They have the same key characteristics, um, but but they do vary in their their overall morphology and shape. Tell me about the morphology or shape of seahorses. Can you describe one in detail and tell me about what each of these parts do? Maybe sure. starting with the head. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, I mean, we can all imagine the, the way kind of iconic seahorse looks. It's almost a little bit like a the knight on the on a chessboard with with a with a horse's head and it's got that that wonderful shape curled over because seahorses have the the uh, the honor of being the only fish in the seas that have a neck um by which i mean they have their heads bent over at 90 roughly 90 degrees most fish just have their head in line with their body so they don't really have that bent over neck but seahorses do and and that's really what gives it this iconic horse shape the miniature horse's head and they have these big bulging cheeks and that's uh that's for them that's where they breathe essentially that's where their gills are and if you watch a seahorse you'll see that it puffs its cheeks in and out um and that's its breathing um and it breathes water um in through its mouth it's breathing water obviously because it's a fish um and out through its gills uh and its long snout um we believe really is an adaptation for the kind of food that it eats uh and this is um and what does it eat well, seahorses eat very tiny creatures, mostly little creatures um, called zooplankton. So basically miniature shrimp, um, usually often they're sort of the, the young larvae of other bigger fish that, that might grow, they might grow into. But they're the little critters that, that live in the water column that drift through the oceans, a bit like grass seeds going by on, on the air. Um, and they will pick out those uh, those little creatures and suck them down. Feeding for a seahorse is a bit like eating your dinner through a drinking straw. They have these long snouts. um, And you might imagine that that's a bit difficult and makes things harder. But in fact, um, studies have shown that that seahorses have the ideal shape um, of mouth for eating these tiny, tiny little creatures that flick around them in their in the water column. Because what they can do is they can line up that snout with, say, a tiny minute shrimp. And then all of a sudden it sucks in a, a vortex of water through its mouth with those big cheeks and um, and the shrimp comes with it. Before it knows it, it's become a seahorse snack. So um, we found and studies show that the, the seahorses and the pipefish, a relative of seahorses, which have a similar kind of snout, um, have... Uh, really the the ones with the longest snouts are the ones that have to go after the fastest prey so they really have to be equipped with a very efficient way of feeding that really explains why they have that sort of horse's head head sort of shape and they have those wonderful um swiveling eyes on that on that head um a bit like a chameleon and they can look in more than one direction um at the same time so each eye can kind of scan around it um it's a wonderful thing if you ever see a seahorse just to watch his eyes um moving in this funny way and they have that so that they can stay still but look around them in the water to find some food and um again makes them very efficient at this sort of ambush predatory um way of eating so now i'm imagining the seahorse on the bottom of a seagrass bed holding on for dear life as the water (laughs) If we journey down uh, through the seahorse from its from its head, we'd see it's got this. Um, well, it, it carries on to this this curling tail, which we have touched, we've mentioned, um, and that's you know its adaptation to hold on to things because it hasn't got these fins. What you would normally see on a on a on a fish is at least a couple of big big fins to for it to push itself through the water with. And seahorses do have a couple of tiny transparent fins, but you have to look pretty carefully because they they move them so quickly that you almost they almost become invisible. And they, they use these not for speed, but for maneuverability. Seahorses are the, the masters of being able to, to, to move through their environment in, in, in all dimensions, in three dimensions. So they can move upwards, downwards, backwards, forwards, and really kind of make use of that habitat. And then once they found something to hold on to, they use that powerful tail. And I can tell you, I've, I've um, been very fortunate to, at one point in the UK 
to meet a seahorse uh, and find one underwater. And we were actually doing a survey. So we had a legitimate reason for holding on to the seahorse. I wouldn't normally encourage you to touch one, but uh, we were holding on to it. Uh, we picked it up to, to measure it and to, to read its tag because it had been tagged before to see how, see how to, to monitor its progress. And its little tail wrapped around my finger and it was really very strong. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. It held on and, and it squeezed my little finger and I felt well, it was a very special moment. It really was. It was wonderful. Um, so they have this strong tail, and and that's that's a very important part of their uh, of their lifestyle is is being able to hold on, as you say, through through storms or or, or waves and whatever comes along. But um, I guess the uh, the 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 funniest, the strangest part of a seahorse that really leads us to to an extraordinary part of their lives is this big round belly that they have. And like a kangaroo, like I said, they have a pouch which, in which the young are, are reared. And it's that fact that, that many people many people are starting to know and find out about, which is that it's the boys, it's the men that have the pouches. It's the men that get pregnant, it's not the girls. Um, and it's the only animal we have ever found throughout the animal kingdom in which this is what happens. So it's the, the chaps who uh, who rear the eggs um, once they're in the pouch. The female puts the eggs into his pouch. He fertilizes them. And then he rears them as they grow up and his belly will grow bigger and bigger. Um, if you see a, a big belly seahorse from Australia when it's pregnant, it looks like a balloon that's been inflated. It's extraordinary um, how big they get. Um, and, and then at the end of the pregnancy, the male will undergo what seems to be, it looks really like quite an arduous birthing process. The poor guys, they use that tail to hold on to whatever they can find to give themselves some purchase and they have contractions there their pouches seem to to contract and and convulse and eventually the tiny baby seahorses will be expelled out into the out into the water um and they're fully formed and they drift off uh, and start their own lives somewhere else um and, and the male gets on right again with uh making more babies <laughs> so it's an arduous life being a male male seahorse. I I can I can imagine. Do the baby seahorses they do not stick around the male for help in learning how to find food and whatnot? No, no, they drift off um, and and uh, life is uh, it's tough for a baby seahorse. But I guess it'll have to just figure it out for itself <laughs> how how to be a seahorse. No, they tend to. I mean, um, the thing with uh, the general thing with seahorses that we found with studies is that they don't live in very great densities, and this is probably part of the reason why um, they're hard to spot because they 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 never live in big shoals. They 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 some species are are, are moderately social and will live perhaps with a few of them in a in an area, but many of them are really very solitary. Um, they will in a piece of seagrass bed, say uh, the size of a tennis court, you might only find one or two seahorses. So they don't. They, they clearly, you know, a piece of habitat doesn't support that many seahorses, you know, even in a healthy population. So so they have to spread out and find their own territories. Um, but uh, but yeah, so you know, the, the baby seahorses find out the way. It's it's, it's always the way in in nature when you get. Oh, hundreds if not thousands of babies and eggs are, are produced and obviously they won't all survive sadly but enough do to keep hopefully to keep the the population going how long does the pregnancy last ah that's a good question well i think um it varies between species and i and like i say there's so much we still don't know about seahorses that we don't know for all species just how long that gestation is but it on average it'll last for a few weeks and um the really charming thing about um seahorses um, I, you know they're in a sense they are solitary but they do form um these very strong pair uh, bonds between a male and a female most species um a lot of them are actually monogamous for their entire lives they stay with the same partner and the way they do this is that every day um uh, once they've met um male and female seahorses in the morning will come together and they will dance uh, and they dance these beautiful, um, just mesmerizing courtship dances together. They they twine their tails, they spin around and round. The male and the female flash their skin different colors because they have the ability to change the color of their skin. They have skin, not scales. I should have pointed that out. That's another strange seahorse fact that, like most fish, uh, most fish have scales, but but seahorses just have have skin. 
So they they communicate. They they are they're in the mood to each other with with changes of color. And in the the male makes a little clicking sound as well with his uh, at the back of his head. We think there's a, a way of uh, of making a noise if you're a seahorse. Um, and uh, and this is how they reinforce their pair bonds. And um, this will lead up to a mating. And they the male and female, if they think that each other is okay, then they'll they'll mate. And the female will then leave the male um, during the days. She goes off and has her own territory elsewhere. Um, but every morning she'll still come back and she'll find the male. He usually is at this stage not really moving very far. He'll stay put. Female comes back and they dance again every morning so that they reinforce this uh, this very strong relationship between the two of them. And uh, and it's really quite wonderful. And we it has an adaptation. It's it's not just we can't be romantic about these things. I mean, uh, it's this is nature. It has to happen for a reason. And the reason is that this is a really we think a way for the female to assess how the male is doing. How is he getting on? Has he had his babies yet? Is he about ready to pop? Is it about time I gave him some more eggs? Should I get my eggs ready? You know, she's assessing how he's doing. Um, so that they can really be um, ready as soon as he's had one load of babies, like he, they can get straight down to it and, and start making some more. <laughs> that's what life's all about. So um, you know, but it's it's a it's a really amazing amazing thing to see this sort of strong relationships between between individual seahorses. There are a couple of species that are a bit more promiscuous. Um, you know, we can't ignore that. Uh, there are some that, that live more in groups, and that females will actually mate with several males, and, and uh, uh, you know, over the course of her life. But but just for one clutch of eggs that he has, she, he will only take eggs from one female. So you know, each each new clutch is is a new family from from a particular female. So even for the promiscuous ones, it's still monogamous yeah. for a little while <laughs> absolutely within each mating um as far as we can tell a whole clutch of seahorses always comes from the same parents um and uh, and yeah and there's a there, there have been studies showing uh showing what seahorses prefer and in fact just a year or so ago there was a wonderful story came out which was that um Males prefer bigger females. They like size really does matter when it comes to a seahorse. Um, that they showed that in the, some Australian species that do have more social interaction and have more choice of mates, that the the males will, will go for a bigger mate female. And uh, and that makes sense because uh, uh, because she's probably got more resources uh, within the same species. The bigger individuals are healthier. They've had more food. And she will probably produce eggs that will last longer, that they will, they've got more food resources in the eggs themselves to grow bigger. Um, because once he's, once those babies are out in the world, it's going to be a tough time. They're going to need all the help they can get. Like you say, no more help from mum and dad. So uh, they have to sort of pack them off with as much food and energy as they can um, for those first few days when, when it could easily become food for something else that's swimming through the oceans. So who preys on baby seahorses? Well, when they're babies, I imagine they they almost really perform. They, they almost uh, become part of the plankton. You know, they're so tiny that they drift around uh, at least for a few days, um, uh, and they're the you know one of the tiny creatures that any of the species that feeds on plankton. And there are lots of different fish and um, mostly fish, I'd say, uh, that feed on on uh, on the tiny zooplankton, the animals, the animals that live in the water column. So, uh, so they could they could come prey to to all sorts of creatures. Hopefully, not even to a seahorse. That would be pretty horrible. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, there. Are, I imagine that they fall prey to, to any of those those creatures that that pick at or sift the water for uh, filter the water for plankton. And um, when they become adults, um, seahorses do have some predators. They they tend to be. Um, Kind of because they're so well camouflaged, they have this skin that can change colour so that they match their surroundings. They also have this outer layer of, of body armour. I, I mentioned that they don't have scales, but they do have um, a kind of these sort of overlapping plates, bony plates that cover their bodies, and um, and that's a really good protection for them. It makes them not good food, really. Um, they're not great to eat. They're a bit crunchy, <laughs> um, and uh, for other animals, so they they aren't a huge. There's not a huge number of predators that will take seahorses, but um, they have been found inside things like tuna, um, and uh, I, I imagine crabs. If they found them, would probably have a munch on a seahorse if they could give it a go. So they do have their predators, but they tend to hide pretty well from them. What role does the female play aside from providing eggs? Well, that's a good question. I guess that is her primary role. I mean, what they've done 
what seahorses have done, which nothing out, no other animals have done, which just really swap around who it is, who, which sex does the rearing. And, you know, normally it's the females that raise the eggs once they've been fertilized, but it's definitely the males that do it for seahorses. So really that's her main job. Um, and, and in a sense, her, her main sort of what she has to spend her time doing is, is eating so that she can produce lots of good eggs to, to pass on to, to the males because once she's done that that she she doesn't really have any role she doesn't she doesn't help to feed him she doesn't protect him she, she pretty much leaves him alone until there's time for more eggs to be passed on so so really that's it that she's she's an egg producing creature really that's it <laughs> and do males and females look different in some species not at all uh, I mean, you can obviously tell if a male is pregnant because he's got his big belly um, and that's a good sign of a male. And then afterwards, even uh, sometimes you'll see that the pouch, you know, you can kind of tell that, that, that there's a pouch there. Um, and I think in some species there is a bit of a size difference and that some of the male, sometimes the females are bigger. Um, but you, there's certainly nothing like in a maybe in, in birds, we imagine that there are often really outlandish males and, and then quite drab females. That doesn't happen in seahorses. They don't seem to have that kind of sexual dimorphism to attract the opposite sex. Um, that doesn't happen at all. I think they rely more on this sort of courtship dance. And then um, one thing that the males do in that lead up to mating is that they actually... They do. They seem to pump their tails up and down. It's a very strange thing to see. Their tails stick out straight, and they pump them and pump them, sort of. Um, and and we think it's possibly that he's showing the female. When it comes to me having your babies, I'm going to be really good at this because this is what I'm going to have to do. I'm going to have to pump and squeeze and and wriggle uh, and look. I can do it. So in a way, that's his display of hey, you know, I'm going to be a great dad. Give me your eggs. So. <laughs> if only it were that easy. <laughs> <laughs> but um and how do the creatures move do they pump their tails to move or because they don't have fins or they just have the little stabilization type fins? Yeah, the, the tiny fins are enough to kind of propel them slowly um that, that's how that's the really really it the, the tails um don't really help with propulsion um in fact when they're moving through the water you'll see they usually curl them up real tight and then they use their little fins just to kind of slowly push themselves through the water. But uh, but you can see that they really, seahorses really, I think, must prefer not to swim. Because quite often I've seen them in, in kind of aquariums uh, in, and on sale, um, kind of sadly, in various countries um, to be made into, uh, actually, no, I'm going to say that again. Um, I, I've seen a lot of seahorses in aquariums and, and they'll just hang on to whatever they can find. I mean, sadly, I've seen some seahorses in an aquarium tank without much else in it. So it really is just seahorses and, and water. Um, but a pipe comes in to give them sort of the air for the to bubble through into the water. And they'll hang on to that. So they were all kind of clustered around each other. They'll even hang on to each other if there's nothing else to hold on to. I've seen a sort of cluster of seahorses all tangled up together because they just seem to want to hold on. They don't want to have to swim because I think swimming for them is hard work. They will when they have to, but they prefer to stay put, I think. So they're sort of like couch potatoes. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> but um, tell me more about the seahorse camouflage. And I know that one reason why it's been hard to identify different species is that a number of species that were actually the same species were identified as separate species because of the camouflage and changes in color and and shape and yeah. on the crown. So what can a seahorse change? They seem so magical in that they can change their body's appearance. <laughs> yeah, well, they have this, this skin instead of scales. And in that skin, they have um, little cells essentially filled with pigment, different colored pigment. And what they can do is that they essentially can, uh, they can expand those cells or they can contract them. So that basically they can, you know, change the, the dominant color that they they're putting out and i don't think we know an awful lot about how they control that whether that's hormonal i think certainly some of it must be kind of a nervous control because it happens quite quickly for example during mating um that they can kind of flash different colors at each other but on a longer term what seahorses seem to be able to do is really blend in 
to their to their environment, to their background, so that it can change their colour to, to become the colour of, of seagrass. And in fact, I've, I'm speaking to people who keep seahorses in captivity. Um, you can put, a, if you put a colourful background to your aquarium tank, so a blue background or green background, they'll match that too. They basically like to mimic what what's 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 around them whatever that may be um but they also have this ability to grow like weedy outgrowths from their skin so little filaments can can kind of sprout out of that skin and it's still it's still part of a seahorse i'd say it's probably a bit like uh i guess a bit like hair i mean us growing our own hair but that they that those filaments can really help give them more of an appearance of say a piece of sort of weedy weedy uh, seaweed um and that will also attract sort of bits of bits of muck from the sea to, to stick onto them so again really increasing that camouflage so in a sense you know that that's why they're masters of disguise because they have this ability to change the texture as well as the color of their skin and that's why when you're doing sort of taxonomy when you're identifying seahorses sea scientifically it's not recommended to use color um too much because they can have different variations it can depend on their mood what color they are um I mean, some some species will have a, a particular range of colors that they tend to have but it's not a very reliable way um of identifying um uh, seahorses because they they really can change um from you know from day to day and from month to month are they the only animal that can change texture as well as color? Um, I think it's obviously it's a pretty rare and a pretty strange thing to be able to do. I think um, I'm thinking octopus can do a similar thing. I'm pretty sure I've seen octopus kind of bumping their skin up and making it rough and maybe smoothing it down. Um, but uh, I would say it was pretty rare. I wouldn't say that that um, that many creatures can do that because obviously chameleons can change their color and that's another wonderful color changing creature but changing texture i guess that's that's a bit rare i'd say yeah maybe another special seahorse trait (laughs) (laughs) the way that they change color is that a different mechanism than chameleons or octopus ah you've caught me there i don't think I, i i actually don't know how chameleons do it but i think on the whole it is a similar sort of at least the concept i think is similar i don't know again i'm not too sure on the details of how they control um, uh, and decide which colors to be but I think it's generally a case of having a layer of skin with these ink almost like ink spots in it which they can expose or cover up and then by doing that they can change the combination of of of, uh, of color and the coverage of different colors and intensity of colors so I think it's similar um, but I, I I'm, I'm not quite sure exactly if they're the same control mechanisms in terms of camouflage, what's the strangest seahorse you've seen? I didn't see it myself, but I heard um, a story about um, a seahorse that was spotted off the coast of the UK a Spots. few years ago. <laughs> ah. Oh, no, sorry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <Spotted. No>. Sorry. <laughs> it was seen. <laughs> so I, I, um, I saw a seahorse. No, I... There was a news story uh, a few years ago about a seahorse um, that was found uh, off the UK coast, and it was bright orange. And people thought, oh, my goodness, we have a new species, a bright orange species of seahorse. This must be a new species. But um, I think they took it and they put it into an aquarium and it, it after a few days, changed its color. And they figured, I think, that it, in fact, the chances are it probably found um, uh, a fishing boy, like a buoy. Sorry, I think that's how you pronounce it um, in the U.S. Um, I say boy, you say buoy. Um, uh, a bright orange fishing float. And uh, and they probably found one of those and decided to try and camouflage itself against it. And it turned bright orange because they don't normally make that color. But uh, yeah, so that's pretty awesome. Um, I mean, the other ones really are the, um, in terms of really spectacular camouflage, are the pygmy seahorses. There's a a species called the Bargebant's pygmy seahorse. And this is a tiny, you know, inch long creature that lives on uh, sea fans in, uh, uh, in places like Indonesia and Papua New Guinea. And Malaysia, and they cover them. They're covered um, in pink bulbous spots. Now these ones are spotted seahorses. They have sort of bulbous kind of protuberances, and they absolutely brilliantly mimic the same kind of structures on the sea fans that they live on. And they live on just one species of sea fan, so that they really kind of tune into that camouflage. And they are so hard to find because they're so tiny, and they look just like a piece of pink knobbly sea fan. It's amazing. As we've been talking about seahorses, it seems that you get a lot of different adaptations for different habitats. Is that right? I would say that the the success behind the seahorse 
model, if you like, the the the, the mode of life that seahorses have in general. I think that the brilliance of it is that it works pretty well in in a range of different habitats. Um, that you know, that we're talking shallow seas mostly. Some of the seahorses go a bit deeper, but mostly we're talking shallow seas. And then with then they have the flexibility of of tuning into those different habitats. So you've got the sea the seahorses that will camouflage themselves like sea fans, the, the seahorses that camouflage themselves like sea grass. But really, I mean, obviously you couldn't take a a sea, a sea fan species and stick it in seagrass and you'd see it straight away. But but I think that the beauty of a seahorse is that it. it you know, it's a it's a model that works well because they can have that adaptation to all those different types of habitats. So mostly, mostly it's in terms of of hiding away. I mean, I think that the key to a seahorse's success is is the ability to lead these quiet lives where no one really bothers you. You can just carry on with your seahorse life and make more seahorses and and suck on plankton and 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 that's really that's really all you need to be a seahorse you just need quiet waters and and to be left alone that's what they try doing and they do it pretty well so what are the threats to seahorses wow well that's a big part of what i write about in the book there are many different things to for seahorse that's, that's threatening them globally now like many marine species they clearly face problems global problems um, of changes in their habitats we've talked about seagrasses and coral reefs and mangrove forests and so on and these are habitats that are doing pretty badly globally um, they face a number of threats from things like climate change we've got problems of when the water if sea temperatures rise then a phenomenon called coral bleaching takes place where um, the algae that live inside the tissues of the animals the corals that make up reefs can abandon them and leave them all bony and white and that will often kill them and if that happens in areas where seahorses are living then that's the seahorses habitat gone and that they really can't do well without those those habitats to hold on to and to, to live in um same with seagrasses that they're a threatened habitat because of coastal development and and things like that so so you know habitat loss and, and degradation really is a big problem for, for seahorses and, and many other species they live alongside so that's a that's one big worry um in particular though seahorses are threatened by overfishing i you know we might imagine that no one would want to eat a seahorse um certainly these little crunchy guys wouldn't seem that appetizing um people do eat them a little bit uh for food but mostly the threat to them is because for hundreds of years, they've been used as a traditional medicine across Asia, and uh, uh, and this continues to be the case today. Increasingly, we're seeing you know millions of seahorses. We think you know as many as at least twenty five million a year being traded internationally, and I think that figure really is quite vague because uh, it's not something that's being monitored very closely. Still, it's something we're still trying to get a handle on. But there's no doubt that seahorses are caught um, partly uh, by directed fishing. Generally, in, in countries um, where artisanal fishing still keeps going, so where, where individuals uh, go out and fish on their own. And in fact, there are some places like the Philippines where they will swim down, fishermen will swim and go snorkeling and, and they will find seahorses and just pick them up by hand and take them away to be sold into the medicine trade. And, you know, and that's one thing that, that has its own issues. But generally, it's a, you know, that's something that's never going to be on a huge scale. Because the really big problem for seahorses really is trawling. Because that's uh, the problem is that uh, they live in in habitats and they have a very similar kind of lifestyle to shrimp, which we do like to eat. A lot of people like to eat a lot of shrimp. So when you go trawling for shrimp in, in habitats like seagrasses and and other sort of coastal um, areas for shrimp, often seahorses come to because they live in similar areas and they get caught at the same time. And possibly, you know, in the past, maybe a few decades ago, those seahorses may well have been thrown back because at that stage, the international trade in seahorses hadn't really got going. Um, even so, they were probably dead by the time they went back in the sea, but but there's always a vague chance some of them might, might have survived. But but nowadays, uh, fishermen who a lot of fishermen all around the world in you know in the in the Caribbean, uh, you know, across Asia, if they catch seahorses, they will um, they will keep them and they will sell them for medicines because they can make a lot of money out of it. A bit like shark fins, um, you know that that is a way of getting some extra income. Perhaps they didn't go um, fishing for seahorses, that it's not what they were after. But if you catch one, you sure as hell sell it because you can make some good money out of it. So that is a big threat to seahorses. And it's something that's going to be a real challenge to try and uh, to try and deal with and to try and come come to some kind of point where we can manage it maybe a bit better than, than we are at the moment. 
And right now, what kind of medicines are they used for? Or is it a general health tonic? Oh, they have all sorts of uh, applications. Uh, there are all sorts of things that uh, that mostly in the Chinese traditional medicines, but also in variations of, of that medicine. So um, across in, in Indonesia and Japan and various Asian countries, there are all sorts of conditions that seem to be uh, uh, the case that seahorses are prescribed to help them against everything from broken bones to asthma to bronchitis. I believe there's an Indian recipe for bronchitis it involves seahorses and uh, and honey for children. Uh, so there are all sorts of concoctions in which seahorses are used. Um, and possibly, well, maybe worryingly, I think, because there's really no evidence for this at all, but they, they're used as, a, as an aphrodisiac, as a nature's form of Viagra. And this is, this is something that goes back centuries in, in the Chinese traditional uh, medicine um, trade, in their tradition. And uh, you'll see seahorses on sale in countries. Like I was in Vietnam where doing research for the book and I saw uh, many seahorses on uh, being sold. They pair them up, uh, tie them together in pairs, even though sometimes they haven't actually paired up males and females. You can tell that they've actually got two females or whatever, but never mind. Um, and they sell those as being particularly potent, uh, you know, if you're in need of a bit of a, bit of a pickup. So, um, you know, and that's the worrying thing, I think, it, for any of these medicines is that they're being used more and more by um, the sort of the increasingly wealthy middle classes in, for example, China. So demand is definitely going up um, because these are not cheap. You know, we're selling seahorses for some of the biggest species can, individuals can sell for sort of $50 or so, you know, which is quite a lot of money. And uh, that adds up to a lot of demand. And so, of course, well, there's demand that people will go out and try and meet that and try and... Uh, find seahorses for people to buy. So uh, it's a, it is a worry, I'd say. Um, whether or not any of those traditional medicines actually work, um, that's also something that we haven't really got a great handle on, just because not many tests have been done sort of outside of those traditional spheres. Uh, maybe you know, science hasn't really gone out and tested if seahorses have these effects. Um, but where, where they have looked, there isn't a huge amount of evidence. And, and I would actually argue that it's kind of irrelevant. I don't think even if tiger bones or seahorses or any of these endangered species really do have miracle cures, I don't think that's even an excuse to go and catch them anymore. If they're a miracle cure, then we should figure out why and figure out a scientific way around that. We don't, shouldn't be an excuse for still going out and catching them as, as many as we can. I really, really don't think that's justifiable in this day and age. And then is it legal to catch them and sell them? It is certainly, uh, there are some uh, national legislations are coming up in various countries which are trying to curb the capture of seahorses and, and protect them in that sense. So, for example, here uh, where I live in the UK, um, the two species of seahorse that live in our waters natively, which we do now know, we didn't know for a while if they were just visiting, but uh, we now that they are resident populations, they are now protected under national law. Um, so even their habitats are protected. So um, hopefully that would translate into, you know, these species really not being affected too much. But obviously the UK isn't really the hub for trades, for example, in the Chinese medicine trade. It's really the countries, you know, closer to the the consumers that are are, are in more trouble. So there are various national um, laws that try and restrict uh, the impacts on seahorses at, at the the kind of capture level, um, and then at the international level. Um, back a few years ago, seahorses were included on a on the Convention on Trade in Endangered Species, and that's CITES. So this is a uh, a convention that essentially aims to uh, to monitor and to control the international trade in, in those species that are really being put in danger by the fact that we're using them as pets, that we're using them as medicines and all these kind of things. And seahorses became one of those species in which trade remained legal, but only if uh, a country that was exporting could prove that uh, the trade isn't causing a detrimental impact on their populations. Um, so this is technically now what should be happening. Um, I think we're still really working towards being able to actually get a handle on that because uh, we've talked about how rare seahorses are and how difficult they are to find. So doing a study on how what impact a trade is going to have on that, that population is not an easy matter at all. So 
a lot of countries are having trouble sort of getting a handle on how to even measure the impact of their trades, let alone, you know, decide if it's sustainable or not. But at least we're having, I think, steps in the right direction towards really thinking more carefully about how many seahorses are being traded, you know, which countries they're being traded in the most. And, and um, you know, we can work towards an ideal situation where we could have a sustainable fishery if you know if ultimately if such a thing is possible and i i kind of i do hope it is because even if it it isn't seahorses are still going to be traded i think you know, there's there's no stopping it at the moment unfortunately not until we've i think the key is going to be looking at that demand side it's looking at the people who are eating the seahorses and, and buying them and we can get to that side of things i think that's going to open up more hope for the the seahorses in general do we even know how many seahorses exist you know i don't think we do um again it's a it's a real tricky one um i i think you know generally that is a big part of the the question mark as to whether or not a certain number of seahorses being traded is sustainable like you say if you don't really know how many you had to start with how can you say if a thousand or ten thousand or a hundred thousand is going to be sustainable so i mean we can get a, like a general idea of the density of seahorses as i said it's pretty low we're talking maybe one or two for a tennis court um and then you can maybe you know multiply that up by the amount of habitat you had but um in terms of a census of seahorses that hasn't really been done yet are they also used in the aquarium trade yes that's right that's one another uh another big uh place that seahorses end up is is in the aquarium trade at least in the past less so now because what's happened um obviously seahorses are wonderful creatures that like you know seeing them is just a great thing and and uh, and i wouldn't want to deny anyone who wants to see them in aquariums i've enjoyed them in public aquariums and 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 they're wonderful things to see and uh but the encouraging thing now is that instead of having to take seahorses from the wild to to put in aquariums we've got really good at keeping them and breeding them in captivity. Like the technologies and the understanding of how to keep seahorses happy, have those males and females make those mating pairs and produce more seahorses in, in captivity has come on so far, even just in the last decade, that now um, there's almost no excuse to have a seahorse in captivity that wasn't itself born in captivity because there are seahorse farms that are, are rearing seahorses and doing really good work to help promote the sustainability of the trade you know to make it very treading very lightly on those 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 populations in the wild and i think that's really encouraging because i think you know everyone should see seahorses and 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 you know even if it's just from behind glass in an aquarium it's a wonderful experience i think it it really makes people engage with with these these creatures and then think about where they came from you know they're they're wild cousins it brings us back to 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 thinking about the oceans and and everything else that goes on and why the oceans are so important so you know and that's fine i think you know if if I had more money and more time, I might keep seahorses myself, maybe, because a lot of people keep them at home uh, as pets now. And, and you know, why not? It's no more cruel than keeping any other kind of pet at home, They're, especially seahorses, which don't swim very far in the sea. You're not restricting it too much. I figured they might be quite happy sitting in a tank. Um, you know, they, they take a lot of looking after. I've spoken to many people who keep seahorses and, and they're quite choosy about their water conditions and the food they eat and so on. And uh, so, uh, but the farm seahorses are much better at staying alive in, in their tanks than the wild ones. So I think you're better off buying farm seahorses anyway, if you're going to keep them, ask where they came from and insist, I you know, absolutely insist that they, they come from a reputable farm. And then I think you can't go wrong. How long do they live? Another great question. Well, um, we uh, have a kind of an idea of how long seahorses live in captivity. Like I say, we're doing much better now at uh, keeping them and, and studying them in captivity. And, and we're looking at around about maybe five to ten years. It varies between species, you know. But uh, in terms of them in the wild, um, life, lifespans in the wild are a bit more hazy. We don't know so well. But um, a good friend of mine researches seahorses in Australia and he tags them. And he, uh, he in fact says that there's one particular male that he has tagged, and uh, and he's seen it for three years running, hanging onto the same piece of coral. So he really is not a cosmopolitan seahorse at all. He stays put, and uh, uh, so you know you get a bit of an idea of how long they live for and how little they can move, which is really very crazy to think you could come back to the same spot and three years later, four years later, there's the same seahorse sitting there. But uh, kind of wonderful, I think. And how do you even tag a? A seahorse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you think that would 
be tricky. And there's a couple of ways that people have come up with. One is by putting a teeny tiny necklace on it. Would you believe? Um, a tiny piece of monofilament thread, very a kind of elasticated thread around its neck with a tiny, like a dog tag even, you know, a little number on it. And people have studied them in uh, before putting these on wild seahorses. There was a lot of time spent putting them on ones in captivity to check that they were okay with it. They didn't upset them. They didn't get themselves tangled up or anything. And it seemed that they were fine. So that's been deployed on wild seahorses and, and they stay on for um you know, for years, you can still see them there. Um, so that seems to be okay and a fairly permanent way of doing it. The other way is um, by injecting little dots of dye into their skin. And uh, some people object to this because it's a bit more hands-on. You know, you have to catch a seahorse and, and take it up to the surface for a few minutes and, and inject this uh, dye into their skin. So you can make little patterns of spots, just a few spots to identify them. Um, so there's some people who don't like that approach, but I, you know, I think it's probably fine. There were, it's the kind of thing we do on various various different animals when we want to try and track the, them individually. So that's also a possibility, but you, you need to know what you were doing to get that right. <laughs> And what is the future for seahorses? And what can people do if they are interested in seahorses and either want to learn more or want to help seahorses? Well, there's all sorts of, like, there are all sorts of ways of uh, of experiencing seahorses and, uh, and, you know, learning more about them these days. I mean, there are some really wonderful seahorse exhibits uh, opening up in aquariums around, uh, around the world. I know there's some wonderful ones um, in, the, in the United States, um, in various big cities. So those are a great port of call for not only seeing seahorses, but also finding out more about them. Um, and that is that is wonderful. And it's a way that, that millions of people will come into contact with these creatures that would maybe not really have the opportunity to. Um, but if you're ever in the ocean, I would encourage you to keep your eyes open. I mean, like I say, they aren't just tropical species. If you happen to be in the tropics, then you are in a good place to be to find a seahorse if you want to try and have a find for one yourself. But, uh, you know, even in colder climes, there's a possibility. And uh, and it's it's just a very fun spotting seahorses and, and seeing them yourself in the wild is so rewarding. It's really just a, a fabulous a thing to be able to do. And, uh, and there are some countries um, that are really starting to cash in, if you like, in a good way on their wild seahorses and realizing that um, people will pay good money to come and visit and go diving or snorkeling and see seahorses. And, uh, you know, it's never a guarantee they're wild creatures and they can do what they please. But, uh, but there are some places where it's, there's a good chance of seeing them, places like Bonaire in the Caribbean, they have great seahorses. I recently went to Belize and there were some, some tours even taking people to see the seahorses. And if you do this in a sensitive way and make sure that people aren't poking the seahorses, except for the researchers, obviously, uh, <laughs> like myself, um, but we do it carefully. Um, you know, don't, don't try to interfere with them too much. Don't touch them. Don't flash lights in their faces. And there are right people are coming up with sort of general protocols like you know if you're taking photographs try not to take too many with a flash bulb on the same seahorse and generally treat it as you might imagine it might like to be treated and and they can bring pleasure to to, to so many people and really give value to keeping seahorses alive um i would also say um really encourage anyone who consumes seahorses themselves you know not just in asia but but asian populations and other people all around the world who still use them as medicines um you know to really think carefully about why they're using them and to, to you know to find out more about where these species come from these are these are wild species many of the many of them are endangered you know we've got lists of endangered species um We've got seven of the seahorses are listed as as vulnerable to extinction. And the others, really, we just don't know. I mean, we, we actually don't know enough about many of the species of seahorses to know how threatened they are. So these aren't, you know, it's, these aren't species, these aren't creatures just to be used and, and used up. I think we need to think carefully about where they come from. So, you know, I'd really encourage you to, to think about alternatives. I'm, we're not it's not like a crusade against those traditional medicines at all. It's just a case of saying, be reasonable about, about the endangered species that are used because there are always alternatives. And if you can afford a seahorse because they're expensive, um, you can sure as you can sure afford to, to pick an alternative to that seahorse medicine. I mean, I think, I, I think also finally, I guess the seahorse really is a, a, an icon for everything else in the ocean. And, and that for me is, is really the kind of, the heart and soul of, of my book is is saying, well, there are these wonderful creatures and there's so many things about them that we can learn and that we can we can really enjoy. But they really represent 
you know the biodiversity of the oceans that and the importance of the oceans and if we maybe seahorses did you know they aren't a crucial species for anything else out there. It's not like you take the seahorses away and the ecosystem starts to unravel, but it's just, just knowing that they're there and, and knowing more about their lives and and the importance of, of every species for its own sake. You know, I think that for me is very positive and, and to help help protect seahorses, we can do things like um, create protected areas. Marine protected areas really are, I think, the future, the hope for, for the oceans in general, for seahorses for sure. If we can leave pieces of the ocean alone where there's no trawling, where there's no damaging forms of, of fishing and we can try and cut down on pollution, then the seahorses you know, will do a lot better and, and so will everything else the seahorses live with. And I think that's my, my point is that we, we save the seahorses and, and we save the seas. So, uh, you know, that's going to be a good thing, I'd say. Well, I really appreciate your taking the time to talk with me today. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed that conversation about seahorses with Helen Scales, author of Poseidon's Steed, the story of seahorses from myth to reality. Edited transcripts of selected programs are available on my website, laurelnemi.com, and also on mongabay.com. That's M-O-N-G-A-B-A-Y.com. You can also find archived episodes of The Wildlife on iTunes, at my website, laurelnemi.com, and at laurelnemi.podbean.com. You can stream the wildlife live at theradiator.org every Monday from 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The wildlife can also be heard on the Animal Wise radio network, which is available nationally and internationally, and is broadcast to any mobile internet device via Live 365, a 24-7 radio network. Of course, if you have any comments about this show or ideas for future ones, you can email me at laurel at laurelnemi.com. The Wildlife is generously underwritten by the Lake Champlain Land Trust, a nonprofit organization permanently conserving the lands, lakeshore, critical wildlife habitats, and natural areas of Lake Champlain. More information is available online at lclt.org. This has been The Wildlife. I'm your host, Laurel Nemi, and you're listening to The Radiator, 105.9 FM, WOMMLP in Burlington, Vermont.